All right, well, please take your Bibles and turn to Revelation chapter 6. Revelation chapter 6, and for tonight we are going to look at verses 9 through the end of the chapter. Uh, Basically, we are in that cycle of seal judgments as the Lamb takes the scroll and is popping off the seals one by one. And we're going to be looking at the fifth and the sixth seal. When the Lamb broke the fifth seal, I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? And there was given to each of them a white robe, and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants And their brethren, who were to be killed, even as they had been, would be completed also. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood, and the stars of the sky fell to the earth as a fig tree casts its ripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it is rolled up, And every mountain and island were moved out of their places. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb for the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to stand. Well, again, last time when we began, we started looking at chapter six, uh, the first four seals of uh, the first four seal judgments that we saw here in verses one through eight. And if you recall back to Revelation chapter five, when we see the one seated on the throne here, he's holding a scroll. He's holding a scroll. It's a book or a scroll written on inside in the back and it's sealed up with seven seals and he's holding it in his right hand. And then we find out, it's like, you know, there's, there's, there's mysteries, like who is able to open the scroll? And then the lamb comes, the lion of the tribe of Judah, who appears as a lamb who has been slain. He comes and takes the scroll in verse uh, 7 of chapter 5. And we talked about this scroll, how this scroll is God's plans for the culmination of redemptive history. And the lamb is the only one who was found to be worthy to take the scroll and to break its seals and to bring God's plans for redemptive history to its close. So then as we get to Revelation 6, now the Lamb has the scroll and he starts breaking the seals one by one, slowly revealing the contents of the scroll. And each of these seals begins to unleash sort of a provisional judgment on the world. The first four seals represented by four horsemen, uh, which we looked at last time. The first one, the white, the rider on the white horse, we argued was the spirit of conquest. So there are some very, you know, there's some, there's some uh, debate as to who it is. Uh, some say it's Jesus. Some say it's the Antichrist. Uh, I opted for this idea of conquest, meaning that the period that we see here, again, we have to understand that as these seals are broken off, the period we are looking at is the period between the resurrection of Christ and his ultimate return at the end of the age in glory. So this period, we are in this period now. 
And we have been in this period ever since 33 AD, give or take. And we will be in this period for as long as the Lord tarries. So these seals are representative of judgments that are happening throughout this period. Not at one time, but throughout this whole period. So this spirit of conquest in this period, the church age, the the time between the returns of Christ, has been a period marked by political and national upheaval. As you see warlords and rulers and leaders seeking to to take over territory, to expand their territory, to build empires and things like that. Then the second seal, you get the rider on the red horse. So as an inevitable result of all this political maneuvering, you see war start to break out. War start to take place as people start dying through the wars. Then that's followed by the third seal, the, the rider on the black horse, which represents famine. So as these wars destroy the infrastructure and the supply chains and the means of production, you start to create shortages, right? Things start to run out. They talk about how the, what is it, the wheat and the barley are being sold for an enormous amount. And, you know, that's what happens when you have war. You get this shortage and the destruction of the infrastructure produces famine. And then finally, you've got the fourth seal, the rider on the pale horse or the ashen horse. And again, the logical result of conquest, war and famine is death, which is what this last rider represents. And again, these are all things that are just happening throughout this entire period. Okay, it's not like, okay, well, 500 years ago, we were done with the white rider. And now we're like in the middle of the black rider or something like that. It's just. Just stuff that is indicative of what's happening now in this day and age. Now, we also looked at Jesus' teaching about his own return in the Olivet Discourse, that great uh, discourse that Jesus has in each of the three synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In Matthew, it's chapters 24, 25. In Mark, it's chapter 13. And in Luke, it's chapter 21. And this is Jesus teaching about his return, which is sort of provoked by or sort of triggered by the the disciples. They see the great temple, Herod's great temple, as they are in Jerusalem near the end of his ministry. And they are inspired by the temple and they ask Jesus, look at this great temple. And Jesus says that this temple will not be here for very long. And then they say, well, that's, that's news to us. Why won't it be here for very long? And Jesus is like, well, I'll tell you. So he tells them sort of the signs of the times, the signs of the end, the signs that will show that Jesus' return is coming. Now, I don't want to rehash all that material, but this is Jesus' fullest teaching about his return. And he spoke about the sign of his coming, or uh, it's a technical word in the Greek, the parousia, his coming, his returning at the end of the age. And we see these pretty much in verses 4 through 14 of Matthew 24. And we said that when you compare these verses that you see in Matthew 24 with what you see here in the sealed judgments, there's a lot of overlap. There's a lot of you know, things that they, they, they mesh together. So in other words, what Jesus says in that section of his Olivet Discourse is mirrored in Revelation chapter 6 with the sealed judgments. Isn't it wonderful that the Bible sort of, you know, it, it agrees with itself, okay? I mean, if it didn't agree with itself, then that would be very unsettling to say the least. 
So while the seals are indicative of God's judgment being unleashed, it is not the final outpouring of his wrath. Again, we said this is a provisional judgment. If you remember way back in Romans chapter 1, where Paul says uh, that the wrath of God is being revealed. So that kind of idea of a present tense continual action. The wrath of God is being revealed against the unrighteousness of man because they reject God. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. So the wrath of God is being revealed against them. So it's provisional, not final. The final wrath, the final wrath of God comes when the seal, when the, the scroll is finally opened and it's fully open. And then that's when you get sort of like the, the sheep and the goat judgments. And then the, the, the unbelievers, the goats will go on to eternal uh, damnation at the end of the age. But these are again, the, these seals here, these, these four horsemen, they were not final judgment, but as Jesus says in Matthew 24, they are the beginning of the birth pangs. So it's, it's sort of like, you know, as a woman is going into labor, as she is about ready to give birth, the moment she starts to get labor pains, the baby isn't going to come five seconds later. It's going to come sometime soon, but not yet. That's the idea. It's like what we see now, we are in the middle of these birth pangs. And they basically, they are God effectively, as I like to call it, taking a, you know, he's in the, he's in the, he's in the on deck circle. Okay. He's in the on deck circle and he's taking his practice swings, getting ready to come up to the plate for final judgment. So this is what's happening now. The full judgment, as we said, comes when the scroll is finally opened at the end of the seventh seal. So as we head into this passage now, verses 9 through 17, we're going to see, as I said, the fifth and the sixth seals being opened. But these two seals give us sort of a rationale, if you will, for the delay in final judgment, which we're going to examine in a moment. But really, there's just, you know, we're going to just deal with these two seals individually. So the fifth seal, uh, you see the martyrs under the altar. And then the sixth seal is indicated by the terror that you see the world experience when the Son of Man returns at the end of the age, the, the terror of the unbelieving world, in verses 12 through 17. All right, so verses 9 through 11, the fifth seal, we're going to see the martyrs, the martyrs. So in a similar manner that you see in the previous four seals here, the Lamb breaks the fifth seal in verse 9. So when the Lamb broke the fifth seal... I saw underneath the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God and because of the testimony which they had maintained. Now, unlike the previous four seals, the fifth seal, when it's broken, is not accompanied by the voice of one of the four living creatures telling John to come and see. That was something you saw with the first four. Each, the first four were broken, and each time uh, the a seal was broken, one of those four living creatures, the cherubim, the people who surround the throne of God, he would tell John to come up and see, come up and see what's going to happen during this period. But here we don't see that because there's only four living creatures, not five. <laughs> and this is the fifth seal. But um, anyway, instead of one of the voices of the four living creatures, we, John says that he gets to see under the altar the souls of those who had been slain. So John here has this vision of Christian martyrs. 
People who have been slain because of their testimony, because of the word of God, because of their faith. They have been, uh, they have been martyred. They have been persecuted. They have been killed and slain for their faith. Now, before getting into the details of this seal or this verse, I want to consider the bigger picture here. Because again, as we've been saying, the seals mark the period of time between the resurrection and the ultimate return of Christ at the end of the age, the church age. I'll just call it the church age for shorthand. But when I say the church age, I mean the period of time between Christ's resurrection and Christ's return. So this seal represents the fact that all throughout this period of time, Christians will be persecuted and killed for their faith. Again, Jesus foretold this in his Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24, verse 9, where he says, Then they will deliver you to tribulation and will kill you, and you will be hated by all nations because of my name. So again, What Jesus says in his Olivet Discourse corresponds with what we are seeing here in these visions in Revelation chapter 6. That this period will be marked, among other things, by a great persecution of the church. People being killed for the faith, people being persecuted for their faith, people undergoing persecution because of the name of Christ. Now earlier in Jesus' ministry, when he sent out the twelve... Uh, he tells them that they too will face opposition. This is, so this is even before Jesus goes to be executed. He just he sends the 12 out. If you remember that scene in, in Matthew and Luke, I think in Luke he sends the 12 out and then later on he sends 72 out. But the idea is the same. He sends his apostles or his disciples to go out into the land and preach the gospel of the kingdom. And he tells them, it's like, don't bring a knapsack, don't do this. If, you know, you go up to the person's door, if they let you in, let your peace be on the house. If they don't, shake the dust off your feet and then go to the next house and da-da-da-da-da, so on and so forth. But in that discourse where he's talking to the twelve, there is another bit of what we were calling prophetic telescoping. You remember when I mentioned a couple times, I don't know how long ago I mentioned, maybe it was during Revelation 4, but the idea of prophetic telescoping, do you remember when I mentioned that? Okay, okay. Eric is like, yeah, I remember, okay. Um, the idea of prophetic telescoping is a prophecy is given and we only kind of see the near fulfillment of it. But there's also a farther fulfillment of it as well. So you've got a near fulfillment and a far fulfillment. So think of it as sort of like, you know, an illustration would be as you look at a mountain range. Okay, if you look at a mountain range from a particular angle, the peaks might look like they're right next to each other. You know, boom, 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 boom. But then when you get up real close to them and from a different perspective, you realize that these peaks are like miles and miles, you know, separated from one another. So what appeared near... From one perspective, when you get a different perspective, actually you see that they're really far apart. So again, you know, the perfect example of prophetic telescoping was uh, when the prophet Nathan prophesies to King David that he will have a son and that the son will build his house and that he will establish his kingdom forever. And we say, well, the near prophetic, you know, the near fulfillment of that is in his son Solomon. Who did build his house? He built the temple of the Lord. 
But we know that that's also a prophecy of Jesus, the far, the, the farther one. So, you know, you look at Jesus and David, you know, at one perspective, they're like, you know, right close to each other. But when you really look at it from another perspective, they're hundreds of years apart. So this, there's the far fulfillment is in Jesus Christ, the ultimate son of David and the great king. So you're going to see some prophetic telescoping in Matthew 10 when Jesus tells his disciples to go out into the towns and the villages and proclaim the kingdom. Because what he predicts is opposition that his disciples will face throughout the entire church age. Because he says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 17, But beware of men, for they will hand you over to the courts and scourge you in their synagogues. And then again in verse 22 of chapter 10, You will be hated by all because of my name, but it is the one who has endured to the end who will be saved. Now, again, when the disciples return a little bit later and they tell Jesus, look, we did wonderful works in your name and demons were cast out and, and the sick were healed and all these things. So nowhere in that period in Matthew 10 did the disciples were handed over to courts to be scourged or did they ever have to fear to sort of endure until the end. So Jesus here is talking about not just what the disciples themselves or go through as they go through the towns and villages of of Israel in that period of time, but also what disciples will face throughout the entire church age as they proclaim the gospel, as they go forth and bring the kingdom, uh, the gospel of the kingdom to people. Men will, they will be turned over to men. They will be handed over to courts. They will be scourged and they will be scourged in their synagogues and they will be hated by all, etc., etc. We see this again uh, from Jesus during his upper room discourse where he is preparing his disciples for what is going to come after he leaves, after he is resurre- after he's, um, crucified, resurrected, and ascended into heaven. In John 15, verses 18 and 19, Jesus says again, If the world hates you, you know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you are of the world, the world would love its own. But because you are not of the world... But I chose you out of the world because this world, this, because of this, the world hates you. So again, we are hated as Christians because we are identified with Christ. Okay. And if we are, if we are Christians and we are not of this world, we're in this world, but not of this world. And that's the reason why this world hates us because we are not of their own. So the point is this. Persecution, martyrdom should not come as a surprise to the Christian. Now it does to us, right? Because we've lived in probably an unprecedented period of grace in which, at least in this country, we have not faced very serious persecution for our faith. Maybe we've been ridiculed. Maybe you get you know, insulted online or in social media, or maybe a friend has kind of scoffed at you or what have you. But we have not faced any real persecution in this country. This country has been, for the most part, a Christian-based nation for its entire existence. And, and it's welcomed religious uh, expression, even amongst non-Christian religions. So we have not faced any persecution in this period. But this is an anomaly. Okay? This is an anomaly when you look at the entire scope of church history in which the church has almost always faced persecution. And even though we're not facing persecution here, doesn't mean that there's not, the church is not being persecuted because there's places around this world today where people are still cowering in fear 
to, to meet as a church, to gather together as a church. They won't have Bibles because they're afraid they'll be either the Bibles will be confiscated or they themselves will be arrested. So there is persecution going on in this world. And Jesus says, don't be surprised by it. It's going to happen. And the apostles also say that. Paul says to, second, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And Peter says too, beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you. So don't be surprised because Peter says, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. So in other words, if someone ridicules you for your faith, don't be like, why is this happening to me? I mean, I don't get it. I'm a nice guy. All I said was Jesus is king and, and you should you know, repent of your sins. Why are they being mean to me? It's like, don't be surprised when they do this as though some strange thing were happening to you. Christians living their godly lives, not conforming to the ways of the world, will eventually face persecution for their faith. Because we are, as Paul says, we are children of light. Right? And our lights shine. We shine the light of Christ into this dark world. This little light of mine, I'm going to let it shine. Right? Every time I mention a song lyric, Sue smiles because she, she plays the, you know, she probably played many of these songs many, many times before. But yeah, this little light of nine, I'm going to let it shine. And we shine the light of Christ into a dark world. And those who live in the dark, as John says in his gospel, hate the light. They don't come into the light because their deeds are evil. So Christians who live lives of faithful obedience are an open rebuke to unbelievers that their ways are indeed evil. Okay, back to Revelation 6, verse 9. That was just kind of telling you this idea of persecution And martyrdom is something to be expected. So again, the first thing John sees is this altar. Now, what does an altar represent? Think of Old Testament worship. What what, what was the altar? The place of sacrifice. Yeah, yeah. That's more of what I was looking for. It's, It's the place of sacrifice. Now, in the Old Testament worship, there were two altars. Okay, the first one was the bronze altar which was inside the temple complex or inside the tabernacle complex. So again, you have to remember the, te- the tabernacle or the temple was constructed in three levels. So you had the most holy place where the Ark of the Covenant was. That's where God dwelt. That's when the glory cloud would come down. And that's where the high priest would have to go in only once a year. Then surrounding that was the holy place where you have the, the showbread and the altar of incense and the, and the, uh, the lamp. And then the, you had the outer court where the walls were. So the bronze altar was in the outer court. And uh, you can read about this in Exodus 27, verses 1 through 8. And it was used by the priests to offer all of the sacrifices before the Lord. So as people would bring their peace offerings, their sin offerings, their guilt offerings, their whatever offerings, they would bring their animal to the priest. The priest would then kill the animal, put its whatever, its body, its carcass, on top of this bronze altar, and then it would be burned and consumed in a fire, and then the blood would be poured into the bottom of the altar. So that's the first altar. That's the bronze altar. The second altar, I kind of gave it away, was the, was the altar of incense, which you see in Exodus chapter 30. And this was an altar, a smaller altar, probably more like this podium, overlaid with gold, and it was placed within the tabernacle in the holy place, so on that second level. And it was used by the priests to offer and burn incense upon. 
Now, again, as I said, the construction of the bronze altar, there was a grating at its base. And the priest would then pour the blood of the sacrifices into the base of the altar. We see this in Exodus 29, verse 12. You shall take some of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger, and you shall pour out all the blood at the base of the altar. Or Leviticus 4, 7. This is in the offering of the sin offering. The priest shall also put some of the blood on the horns of the altar of fragrant incense, which is before the Lord in the tent of meeting. And all the blood of the bull he shall pour out at the base of the altar of burnt offering, which is at the doorway of the tent of meeting. So you've got all this blood in the bottom of this altar here. So the idea being that these martyrs that John sees underneath the altar are in the place where the blood of all the sacrifices was poured during all of this Old Testament worship. And again, John says to his disciples in John 16, 2, they, the unbelieving world, will make outcasts of you from the synagogue, but an hour is coming for everyone who kills you to think that he is offering service to God. So what, what Jesus is saying here and what this vision is kind of representing is that the unbelieving world, the people who are persecuting the church and persecuting the saints, are going to sort of feel like they're doing God's work. They're doing the Lord's work by getting rid of these rabble-rouser church people, these believers who just upset the apple cart. They don't, they don't play along well. They're always causing trouble wherever they go and so on and so forth. So it will be as if these martyrs are being offered up as sacrifices to God. Now, of course, there's a sense in which we are sacrifices to God, right? Paul will look at this, Lord willing, next, uh, next week in Sunday school in Romans 12. But Paul calls us to be living sacrifices to God in Romans 12, 1 and 2. Living sacrifice is one that is not dead. <laughs> Hence, it's living, kind of self-explanatory. But also, Jesus, in a couple of places, tells us that we need to be willing to lose our lives for his sake. Right? Mark verse, uh, chapter 8, verses 34 and 35 And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel's will save it. So we have to be willing, at least, to lose our lives for the sake of Christ, to be a sacrifice, to be a martyr, to be a witness to the testimony that we hold within ourselves. And again, even the psalmist says that God himself is said to delight in the death of his saints. Psalm 116, 15. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his godly ones. Now, it's not like God is up there taking kind of a perverse pleasure in the death of his saints. The idea is that a person who is martyred for their faith is one who is offering the ultimate sacrifice, which his son, Jesus Christ, himself offered. And then when we die in a, in, you know, as, a, in a, as a faithful witness to Christ, that is pleasing to God. Not the fact that we are dead, but the fact that we gave everything to Christ. Because again, you know, what does Paul say in Philippians? He says, for me to live is Christ, to die is what? Gain. Right? If I die in this world, I'm not really losing all that much. That's what Paul is saying. And what I hope to get when I pass from this life to the next, is going to far exceed anything that I think is worthy in this life. 
So we saw that these martyrs have been slain for their testimony to the word of God. And these slain saints now are seen in verse 10 as crying out from underneath the altar. And they cried out with a loud voice saying, How long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? So the saints are crying out to the Lamb to avenge their deaths. We have been slain for your cause. How long will we continue to sit here under this symbolic altar in heaven until you vindicate us? This is like how you see in a lot of these lament psalms that you see throughout the Psalter. Like Psalm 13.1 where David says, How long, O Lord, will you forget me? How long will you hide your face from me? This is David while he is out on the run, uh, hiding from Saul as Saul is seeking to kill him. He says to to God, how long will I have to be out on the run? How long will you forget me? The saints under the altar are saying essentially the same thing. How long have you forgotten us, O Lord? It's almost accusatory. It's almost kind of sacrilegious in a sense, right? You almost feel like... You know, I mean, if I were God, which is a good thing I'm not, but if I were God, I might be like, look, just be patient. Shut up down there. It's like, what are you you complaining? You know, but God is not like that. God is not like that. These precious saints are wondering if the Lord is slack concerning his promises of vengeance, but thank God he is not. Peter says in his second letter, the Lord is not slow about his promises, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing for any to perish, but for all to come to repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. So, you know, Peter is telling his readers, judgment is coming. The Lord is not slow regarding his promises. He is not slack. He hasn't forgotten. He's, He's not up there, you know, like missing his iPhone alerts or whatever, you know, he's got his iPhone on do not disturb. So he's like, oh, I forgot the alarm that says I need to go visit judgment on the earth. And it's like, oops, you know, sorry about that. No, he's not like that. He's not like that. And here in verse 11, Jesus answers the saints under the altar. He says, each one of them was given a white robe and they were told that they should rest for a little while longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brethren who were to be killed, even as they had been would be completed also. So very comforting, right? The Lord comes up to them. They, they are crying under the altar and the Lord is like, just be patient. Here's the white robe. This is the robe. We saw this robe before. It symbolizes several things. Uh, it's, it's like the white robe of purity. It's the white robe of victory. It's the white robe of Christ's righteousness. He's like, look, you know, it, just wait a little while. Just be patient. It's coming. It's coming. But the reason why you need to wait a little while is because there's more. There are more people (laughs) that are going to be martyred for the faith until the number of their fellow servants would be completed. Now, that means there is an end in sight. (laughs) Okay, there is a light at the end of the tunnel. There is a number, whatever that number is, sort of like we saw earlier this morning in Romans 11, until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. There is a number of martyrs and that when that number ends then the end will come vengeance and vindication will come it's simply awaiting the full number of martyrs to be completed now it's a comforting thought to us in the here and now because we are part of what is called the church militant have you ever heard that language before the church militant and the church triumphant 
So it's just a way of describing the church here on earth, which is the church militant, and then the church up in heaven, the, the, the saints who, are, who, are, who have passed on to the next life awaiting their resurrection bodies. That's the church triumphant. Okay, again, where Paul says, for me to live is Christ, for me to die is gain, because when I die, I enter the church triumphant, right? But right now I'm in the church militant. We are fighting. We are, we are waging a spiritual warfare against the world, the flesh, and the devil, and we are facing persecution and martyrdom. We are the church militant, the persecuted church, but a time will come when we will all be vindicated. Okay, now verses 12 through 17. Hopefully I'm trying to go a little quicker here. Uh, the sixth seal is terror. Terror. As things now begin to get real, as John sees the lamb break the sixth seal, look at verses 12 through 14. I looked when he broke the sixth seal, and there was a great earthquake, and the sun became black as sackcloth made of hair, and the whole moon became like blood. And the stars of the sky fell to the earth as fig tree as a fig tree casts its unripe figs when shaken by a great wind. The sky was split apart like a scroll when it was rolled up, and every mountain and island were moved out of their places. So there's a lot of stuff happening here, right? When, when this sixth seal is broken, there's a lot of stuff happening here. you got a great earthquake. you got the sun becoming dark. you got the moon becoming red as blood. you got stars falling to the earth. The sky splits apart and rolls up like a scroll. And you've got mountains and islands sort of being rearranged and displaced. Now, keep your finger here. We're going to be turning, turn back to Matthew 24. And you're going to keep your finger there because we're going to go back and forth between the two. Sorry to be bouncing around, I know, but it's, it's nice to compare Scripture with Scripture here. So we just read what the sixth seal does here. So you've got this earthquake, the moon, the moon turning to blood, the sky, the sun turning dark, the stars falling, etc., etc., etc. And now, in Matthew chapter 24, starting in verse 29... If you have a heading there, you might see like the glorious return or the return of Christ or something like that. But then Jesus says, but immediately after the tribulation of those days, the sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its life and the stars will fall from the sky and the powers of the heavens will be shaken. And then the sign of the son of man will appear in the sky and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the son of man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory And he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet, and they will gather together his elect from the four winds from one end of the sky to the other. Okay, now again, keep your finger there. Now, does that just sound similar to what we saw with the sixth seal? Yeah, it's very similar to what we saw with the sixth seal. These great cosmic and cataclysmic events mark the return of Christ in glory. Now, remember, what happened when Jesus Christ was crucified at his death? Yeah, it was dark for three hours. There was also an earthquake, right? So, again, these are signs of judgment. You see things like earthquakes and sun darkening and and stars falling and, and things like that. These are signs of God's coming in judgment. Now, in the case of the crucifixion, God came in judgment on Christ, right? He took on that day of the Lord wrath that we are all meant to have 
take place in because he took it in our place. He was condemned in our place. He was uh, uh, judged in our place. But you have that same kind of things happening during his crucifixion with the earthquakes and the sun darkening and all that. And here at his return, same, same type of thing, these cosmic cataclysmic events which mark the judgment of God and in particular the return of Christ in glory. And again, Peter in his Pentecost Day sermon in Acts chapter 2, where he's quoting the prophet Joel, and I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come and it shall be that everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, that same type of language from the prophet Joel, which speaks of the great and awesome day of the Lord. Now, I just kind of mentioned this, though, but the day of the Lord, if you're here for the Good Friday service, is that great end times event which God will pour out his wrath upon mankind for their sins and wickedness. And Peter can speak in Pentecost of the day of the Lord as being sort of fulfilled at the cross because on the cross, as we said, Christ suffered and took the brunt of God's wrath, that day of the Lord type wrath on himself for our sin, for the sin of his people. But there will be a day of the Lord, again, prophetic telescoping. You know, so a near time fulfillment of the day of the Lord, far time fulfillment of the day of the Lord. There will be a day of the Lord at the end of this current age. I've got a couple of big chunks of text here from 1 Thessalonians where Paul himself speaks about the day of the Lord. Now, in those letters to the Thessalonians, um, they had a lot of things right going for them, but they were sort of, mis- they sort of had some errors in thinking about the return of Christ. They had thought that it had already come or that you know, maybe those people who are dead in Christ are not going to be raised. They thought maybe Jesus would come before any of them died in, their, you know, in a very short period of time. So they were worried about the people who were dead, which is why then Paul in 1 Thessalonians 4 says, don't worry about those who are dead. They will precede you and so on and so forth. But in 1 Thessalonians, that's a hard one to say. 1 Thessalonians, don't say that too fast. 1 Thessalonians 5, you don't need to turn there, but you, you can if you want. I'm, I'm reading from my notes. Uh, chapter 5, verses 1 through 3. Paul says, now as to the times and the epochs, brethren, you have no need of anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know full well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. Now, remember, we read from Peter earlier that the Lord's return will come as a thief in the night. Jesus Jesus himself says that my return will be like a thief in the night. You're not going to expect it. That's the idea. The thief comes when you don't expect it. Right. So the, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While they, that is unbelievers, are saying, peace and safety, then destruction will come upon them suddenly like labor pains upon a woman with child and they will not escape. And then he writes in his second letter to the Thessalonians because they were kind of mistaken this a little bit. Chapter two, verses one through four, he says, now we request you, brethren, with regard to the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, that you be not quickly shaken from your composure or be disturbed either by a spirit or a message from or a letter as if from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So he's saying, look, look, you know, all right, I told you about the day of the Lord in my first letter. Now some of you think that the day of the Lord has already come. Like it hasn't come yet. And I'm going to tell you why it hasn't come yet, because something needs to happen first. Verse three says, let no one in any way deceive you. 
For it, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the apostasy comes. Then the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God and displaying himself as being God. Now, are you still in Matthew 24? You haven't gone back to Revelation 6, so stay in Matthew 24. So now, that's what Paul has said in First and Second Thessalonians. Now, again, look at chapter 24, starting in verse 15. So Paul says, it's going to come like a thief. There's going to be an apostasy. There's going to be someone who's going to set himself up in the temple of the Lord. So starting in chapter 24, verse 15, Jesus says now, Therefore, when you see the abomination of desolation, which was spoken of through the prophet Daniel, standing in the holy place, let the reader understand. Now pause. Paul said the man of lawlessness, right? He's going to set himself up as a god in the temple, and he's going to take worship. He's going to be an object of worship, and he's going to take his seat in the temple of God. Here, Jesus says there's this abomination of desolation. More than likely, we're talking about the same individual. So then those who are in Judea must flee to the mountains. Whoever's on the housetop must not go down to get the things that are out of his house. Whoever's in the field must not turn back to get his cloak. But woe to those who are pregnant and those who are nursing babies in those days. But pray that your flight will not be in the winter or on the Sabbath. For then there will be a great tribulation such as not occurred since the beginning of the world until now, nor ever will be. Unless those days had been cut short, no life would have been saved. But for the sake of the elect, those days will be cut short. Then if anyone says to you, behold, here is the Christ, or there he is, do not believe him. For false Christs, okay, Paul said there's going to be a great apostasy. Here we see that. False Christs, false prophets will arise and show great signs and wonders, so as to mislead, if possible, even the elect. Behold, I have told you in advance, so if they say to you, behold... He is in the wilderness, do not go out. Or behold, he is in the inner rooms, do not believe them. For just as the lightning comes from the east and flashes even to the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. Wherever the corpse is, there the vultures will gather. Okay. So this all speaks of the great tribulation and the great apostasy that immediately happens prior to the return of Christ. Because what happens in the next couple of verses here in verse 29, that's when Jesus talks about his return. So you've got this, this sort of tribulation, this abomination of desolation, this great apostasy. Then Christ returns. And then again in Matthew 24. I know I'm spending a lot of time in Matthew. I'm sorry, but it's really good. Starting in verse 36. This is in the parable of the fig tree. Verse 36 to 41. But of that day and hour, no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the son of the father, but, sorry, but the father alone. For the coming of the Son of Man will be just like the days of Noah. For as in those days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until that day that Noah entered the ark. And they did not understand until the flood came and took them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Then there will be two men in the field. One will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill. One will be taken and one will be left. So again, this idea that the, t- the coming of the day of the Lord will come when you least expect it. People are going to be just enjoying life as normal, marrying, giving in marriage, doing all these things. And all of a sudden, boom, there comes the day of the Lord. And then they're not going to know it. They're not going to expect it. It's going to be like the days of the flood because the flood was a sort of a precursor of the day of the Lord. 
Now, you can turn back to Revelation 6. So I say all of this, okay? This is a lot of material I'm kind of unloading on you, okay? And just think of how much, you know, I was sort of absorbing into myself as I was studying this. Now you're getting the brunt as I'm unloading it on you. But all of this is to say that it is my contention that when the sixth seal is broken, this includes the day of the Lord and the return of Christ. That's why I've been belaboring all this, going back and forth from 2 Thessalonians to Matthew 24 and so on and so forth. Because when this sixth seal is broken, that is the end. Christ returns and judgment is coming. The day of the Lord is upon us. Now you might ask, how can the return of the Christ be here in the sixth seal when we're only in Revelation chapter 6? We've got, what, uh, 12 or 22 more chapters to go or... 14 more chapters or 16 more chapters to go. That'd be like finishing a novel in chapter 3, but then you go on for like 20 more chapters in the novel. Like, well, what's, what's the point? That's a good question. I'm glad some of you asked it. Well, if you remember back in February when we looked at Revelation 4, okay, so we talked about prophetic telescoping. Do you remember when I mentioned about prophetic recapitulation? You remember that one? Just say yes. Make me feel happy. Okay. Okay. Well, the idea of prophetic recapitulation is that the, the visions that we see in Revelation 4 through 20. Remember, again, Revelation broken up to three main sections. You've got things that were, things that are, and things that will take place after this. Okay. The things that were, Revelation chapter 1, things that are. Revelations chapter 2 and 3, the letters to the seven churches, things that take place after this, Revelation 4, basically to the end of the book. But in, the, in those chapters, 4 through 20, we see seven cycles of judgments in which many of these visions overlap. And the example or the illustration I gave was, you know, you're watching the Cornhuskers play football, Right. And whoever their running back is, I don't know who they're, I'm just, I'll go back and running back in history. Let's say Amon Green. Okay, so Amon Green's got the ball and he's running and he's trying to score the touchdown and he gets to the goal line and he's being tackled and he's going down and you think the ball breaks the plane, but you're not sure if the knee hit the ground before the ball breaks the plane and they, they rule on the field touchdown. Now what happens is now you got all the replays, right? You got, okay, let's get the sideline replay to see, okay, did the knee go down? Let's get the overhead replay, say, okay, did the ball actually cross the plane? Let's get this replay, that replay. It's all, you've got seven, eight, nine different views of the same thing. That's what prophetic recapitulation is. These cycles in Revelation chapters 4 through 20 are different perspectives of this same church age period. So the seals give you one perspective. The trumpets will give you another perspective. The bowls will give you yet another perspective. Chapters 12 through 14, which talks about the woman and the dragon and the beast and the, and the, and the false prophet, give you another perspective of this period of time. So they all look again at that period of time between the resurrection and return of Christ. So here we are at the end of that first cycle. Okay, now technically the end of the first cycle is the seventh seal. And then we've got chapter seven, which is like an interlude. But really what we see in chapter six is the return of Christ. It's a perspective of the return of Christ. 
Now, if you hold to a dispensational point of view and a futurist interpretation of Revelation, this seal is a little harder to explain. Because then what you have to say is, well, it's not the return of Christ. It's just sort of another type of judgment until Christ ultimately returns. Because the dispensationalist kind of looks at everything in Revelation as just sort of like like in, in linear progression. Okay? So, it, you know, chapters 4 through 20 is just one line of stuff happening. Okay? Whereas what we're saying is, no, this section is talking about one view, then this section is kind of the same thing and overlaps here and so on and so forth. We're, we're getting multiple perspectives of this period. But anyway, notice that when Christ returns and inaugurates the day of the Lord, the response of the people is what? It's terror. They are afraid. <laughs> the Lord is coming in judgment and they are afraid. Look at verses 15 through 17. Then the kings of the earth and the great men and the commanders and the rich and the strong and every slave and free man hid themselves in the caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they said to the mountains and to the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the presence of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come and who is able to... When I see that, it's like, I, I honestly... Now, full disclosure, I used to be dispensational. But now I read that, and it's like, how can you say that this is... It says, the great day of their wrath, the wrath of the Lamb and the one who sits on the throne. Sounds like the return of Christ to me. I don't know. Anyway. Now, notice this list of dignitaries in verse 15. You've got kings, great men, commanders, rich, strong, slave, free... Basically, people from every walk of life, from every sphere of society, from every demographic. And when Christ returns, they hide themselves. They hide themselves from the day of the Lord. Now, I have to ask you, because I'm not sure of the answer to this, so maybe you can help me. Can people successfully hide from God? Good. Okay, that was what I thought, too. Because what does Psalm 139 say? You know, if I go up to the heights of the mountain, you're there. If I go to the depths of the sea, you're there. If I go here, you're there. If I go everywhere, you're there. And, and if you think about it, hell is not the absence of God. God is there in hell too. He is just there in judgment, pouring out his wrath eternally on those who, are been, who have been consigned to hell. You cannot escape the presence of God. But we always try, right? <laughs> we always try to do that. What did Adam and Eve do when they heard the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day? They hid themselves. How, how successful was that? <laughs> not very successful, right? Now, even though God says, Adam, where are you? It's not like he's like, you know, playing peekaboo. Like he, he knows where Adam is. He's more thinking of the question like, where are you spiritually? Where is your mind at? Okay, I know you're, you know, I know you're hiding there. I could see you, right? Um, man cannot stand in the presence of the holy God. Job thirty-one thirty-three. Have I covered my transgressions like Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom? In other words, just because I hide my sin in my heart, does that keep it from God knowing? Does, does that keep God from knowing the sin in my heart? No, because he sees into the heart of each, each of us. Man attempts to hide from the wrath of God, but there is nowhere where he can flee from God. And here they are even crying out to the mountains, 
fall on us and hide us from the presence, you know, just kill us, just bury us in, a, in an avalanche of rock and stuff. And, you know, maybe that will hide us. But even in death, they cannot hide from the presence of God. As we'll see more in, in more detail later in Revelation, when Jesus returns in glory, he will be coming on the clouds with power and great glory. He's going to be fearsome. He's going to be coming with the heavenly hosts, and it will truly be a sight to behold. Jesus will not be coming in grace and mercy in his second coming, but in vengeance and great wrath. Now, Jesus' first coming was for the purpose of bringing salvation to God's elect, right? He came... Uh, in, in humility. He came clothed in weakness. He came as a baby in a manger. He came uh, where it says in Philippians, he says, God, you know, Paul says that Christ emptied himself. He gave up the prerogatives of deity to assume the form of a servant to serve us. He, you know, Mark says that Jesus came to seek and save the lost and to be a servant to the needs of mankind. That was his first coming. Not so his second coming. It's going to be a way different picture in his second coming as he returns to bring judgment upon the wicked, great and small alike. And this appearing of Christ strikes great terror into the wicked, as it should. As it should. So much so that they wish mountains to fall upon them, but even in death, they cannot hide from the wrath of God. And here I find it even ironic that even in the event of the great and awesome return of Christ, in judgment, the wicked here, instead of repenting of their sin, they just want to hide. Right? They, don't, they don't say, forgive me, Lord, for sinning against you. No, they say, mountains, please fall on me and hide me from the wrath of God. Even at the last moment, they will not repent. They will not bow the knee. They, they, they would rather die and hide than repent and bow the knee to the Lamb. Well, the end indeed is nigh. And these two seals tell us two simple truths. The first is that believers can expect persecution and even martyrdom during this period, but that unbelievers can expect the day of the Lord to come with great terror. And it all the more stresses the importance to not harden your hearts if you hear the Savior's voice. That's what the writer of Hebrews says. If you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts. Today is the day of salvation. Do not harden your hearts but it will not always be so. But at the end of that section there, the people who hide from the great day of the Lord, who wish the mountains to fall upon them, they ask a question. Who is able to stand? That's a great question. Who can stand on the great day of their wrath? And that's what we'll look at next time when we look at Revelation chapter 7, verses 1 through 8.